0: It's Wednesday, May 13th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So you know, hey, hey, what can I do? That was originally a Led Zeppelin B-side, but radio DJs would be flooded with requests to play it, and then it became a staple of rock radio. The preceding sentence has been brought to you by the Department of Things that in 50 years will have no meaning to anyone who hears it. All right, B-sides, DJs, call-in requests. Came across another similar sentence that will mean nothing pretty soon, but it's a pretty amazing sentence. It's about the, uh, the deal between AOL and Verizon. Are you ready? 2.1 million Americans still use AOL dial-up connecting through their landlines. All right, let's put aside, wait, Daddy, what are landlines? They use dial-up. Now I thought that the AOL Verizon thing I was that was somewhat in my mind akin to Hardy's taking over Roy Rogers or maybe the other way around just in terms of brands that might not actually be on the cutting edge of relevance, but you know, whatever, it's a billion dollar deal. We've got to cover the hell out of it. I just could not believe that so many people were using dial-up. Most of them do live in rural areas, though tech writer Peter Kafka called the continuing 2 million dial-up subscribers, well, he described it in an article, AOL's amazing, inexplicable money factory, and the inexplicable part was explained by his explanation, old people who probably forgot you've got cognitive impairment. I assume if you use dial-up, you can get to a helpful Geocity site on the AOL, or maybe you could just ask Jeeves, and there you will find references to Japanese pilots crawling out of jungles in Borneo believing the war is still going on. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe there's just a certain ring to dial up. I mean, you watch an NFL game, and they're always talking about the defensive coordinator dialing up a sack, dialing up a blitz. I mean, maybe the defensive coordinators are the ones who are still paying AOL millions of dollars to use dial-up. Maybe they're the ones who are just not letting go. On the show today, is Congress getting a little less dysfunctional? Spoiler alert, no. And in the spiel, simple solution to the Amtrak crash. But first, without amendment, so ordered. (laughs) in Congress and this may be hard to follow the exact procedure the outcome is and in Congress a big trade bill died President Obama, he's a Democrat, was for it, but every Democrat except one voted against it. So let's talk about the procedure that bills are proposed, that amendments are allowed or not allowed to be grafted onto those bills. And let's talk about the machinations between Harry Reid, who used to be Senate Majority Leader, now he's Minority Leader, but he's still having a great effect, and Mitch McConnell, who is the current Republican Senate Majority Leader. Joining me now is Kate Nocera. She's Senior Congressional Correspondent for BuzzFeed. Hello, Kate. Uh, hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well. So does that mean you cover the Senate, but when you deign to the House, is that what the senior, the seniority allows?
1: <laughs> means I get to cover kind of whatever I want, which is nice. Yeah. I like the House better, though. It's more exciting over there.
0: It's not the cooling saucer of democracy. That's right. It's the fun shitstorm of democracy. I can say that. They can't. <laughs>
1: The food is way better in the Senate, though. I'll, I'll just say that. That's uh, not
0: controversial. <laughs> that's just fact. Yeah, but that's why all those fat cats in Washington get fat. Yankee bean okay. soup. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about this process. It's really hard to understand for regular people. Luckily, you're not a regular person. This trade bill died. Democrats did not get behind it. Only one Democrat voted for it, and we had the specter of Harry Reid wanting to link it to other provisions. Now, sometimes when that happens, that's referred to as a poison pill. Right. An example is like when Tom Cotton says, "Hey, if you want this Iran deal to go forward, we're also." going to pass a law that iran has to recognize israel and people say that's a poison pill was the reed stuff that he was attaching a poison pill
1: republicans say that it will be that if all four bills move forward together in one republicans will fall off the trade deal that they had crafted this compromise to get
0: republicans and democrats together to vote for it that's right. The point isn't that Reed really knows these other bills have no chance of passing. Is that He'd really not only like to get them to pass, but he thinks maybe in some way they have a chance of passing? Yeah.
1: I mean, he thinks that his caucus will support them. And, and you know, Democrats up here are, are all over the place on, on trade, on trade stuff. I mean, Reed doesn't like this trade bill at all. Yeah. I think he would actually be fine if these got attached and ended up kind of killing the deal in the end. They keep talking about wanting to strengthen protections, talking about, you know, currency manipulation uh, as part of the trade deal. And this is stuff that Republicans just kind of don't want to go for. So what McConnell thought he was moving forward yesterday was a crafted bill Mm -hmm. that would get the support of pro-trade Democrats. And then around noon yesterday, Everything kind of fell apart. and Ron Wyden, who'd been leading the pro-trade Democrats through this bill, said that you know even he's not he wouldn't vote for it moving forward unless all this other stuff was also going to move forward at the same time
0: right so this brings up a question i had so here's president obama he goes Mm -hmm. to oregon ron wyden state he talks about how oregon berries are going to be you know eaten throughout the world with the trade bill he goes to (laughs) nike i mean could anyone be talking to oregonians more than obama he doesn't go to the capitol hill during this thing but i guess he does what he does and even ron wyden doesn't support him does this say something about obama's effectiveness Does it further say something about the argument, oh, the only reason that Obama wasn't getting, say, health care passed was because Mm -hmm. of Republican obstructionism? This is an instance of there's no Republican obstructionism, but Obama doesn't get his legislative agenda through. You're right. He didn't come to Capitol Hill.
1: You know, he went to Oregon to this one place with Ron Wyden. He's doing the things that he wants to do and what. You know, a lot of members up here would say he needs to do is come and talk to them. He needs to come and talk to them. I think the argument. I think there was a lot of Republican obstructionism when the Democrats were in charge, but now you know Obama's in a lame duck. He wants to get some big, you know, legislative priorities done, and he's he's facing you know these up and comers in his own party who are who are looking for you know a much longer political future than than President Obama has right now. I also think Ron Wyden walking away has a lot more to do with Ron Wyden than it does with President Obama. The guy that's up for re-election, Oregon's really split on trade. He wants to kind of have it both ways, you know, appeasing the progressive community in his state and also um, guys like Nike.
0: I want to take a step back for a second. I think it was on January 22nd. It was tweeted out. It was noted that the Senate had already voted on more amendments in 2015 than Harry Reid allowed all of last year, all of 2014. PolitiFact checked it. It's true. But does this mean that McConnell is a little bit freer with the process than Reid was?
1: McConnell made a pledge when he ran for election and when he ran for majority he didn't really run for majority leader he was going to be the majority leader but he promised the people that supported him that he would have as much of an open amendment pro- he would have an open amendment process on big bills that you know that was a huge complaint about the the Democrats in the Senate that Harry Reid just blocked everything and wouldn't have open debate and so what he did was he allowed this open amendment process, uh, but then kind of came up against, you know, the realities of what that is uh, on this Iran deal, a couple weeks ago. Yep, I think you referenced it before, where Cotton wanted to introduce an amendment that would have killed a really, you know, tough crafted deal between Democrat Ben Cardin and and Republican Bob Corker. And Corker just, you know, eventually, I think, convinced McConnell and others that, like, look, we we want to pass this, and the president says he's going to sign it, and let's shut it down. So McConnell did do what Reid was pretty infamous for doing filing the tree, which is a weird way to say, you know, shut down the amendment process. Yeah, basically. And basically, allow, and basically
0: yeah. that is you. There are a certain number of amendments allowed. So Reed used to just fill it up with amendments like, I don't know what, put a comma somewhere instead of right. another place. And then he'd exactly. fill it. He'd fill up all the amendments and something of substance couldn't get introduced.
1: Right. Unless it was something, you know, expressly previously agreed upon Yeah, by him. It had to have his approval to get into that process. So... Just- that's what McConnell did. I mean, he—I think—bumping up against the the reality of, of, it. you know, he has a he has a pretty big tent of uh, opinion in his conference, and a lot of guys running for president. So people are going to want to do all kinds of things mm-hmm. to bills that could 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 hurt them, could hurt the bill ultimately. He and McConnell wants to be seen as a guy who who's who's fair-minded and gets is productive.
0: All right, I'm gonna. This is called the. Uh... Kate Nocera, impossible hypothetical. Here it is. Oh God! If President Obama were a senator, would he be the second vote for this trade bill? Oh my gosh! Every Democrat about one backed off. Such is the power of Harry Reid, I guess.
1: It's the power of Harry Reid, and it's it's the you know it's to some extent it might also just be about like revenge for, for McConnell, you know, mm-hmm. just trying to be like, all right, this is what you did to us. We're going to do it to you now. But a lot of the pro-trade guys really do want some more protections in the bill, you know, environmental protections, human rights protections, that kind of stuff, which is important to them and it's important to their constituents. I don't know if Senator Obama would have voted for this bill, but Obama as he is now, if he's suddenly a senator again, he probably would vote for this bill. The White House is backing off a little bit now, saying, you know, we always knew it was going to, you know, be a tough road, and now we're back to the drawing board, and we're going to, you know, figure out how to make this the best, most progressive deal we can. But I think they really wanted to see it get done yesterday.
0: If I, as a fair-minded observer, who I know that, you know, some policies I'll like and some I'll hate, but if I generally want the process to be Less dictated from the top, more open, more efficient. Should I give McConnell some credit? I mean, if we don't give these guys credit for trying to be open, they'll never be open. Does McConnell deserve some credit? I think he
1: does. Yeah, I do. And I, and I think that I think that even Democratic senators would say, you know, they appreciate the opportunity to have because I mean, you know, it helps the minority too. They can they can introduce amendments. They can have debates on on whatever they want. You know, Reid also had uh, an agenda that he thought was uh, right and the best thing, you know, for the country and for the president, and, and that's why he was so, you know, iron-fisted on the Senate. I think McConnell feels that he has a vision, uh, but he also has a Democratic president right now, so.
0: Okay, last question Well, I got gotcha. you. Of the 433 senators running for president, no, uh, uh, Marco <laughs> Rubio, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, let's throw Bernie Sanders. Lindy,
1: Lindy. Graham.
0: Lindsey Graham, well, Bernie don't Sanders. Don't forget
1: Graham Minton.
0: Who, you know? <laughs> I've got it. I've got it. There ain't no cure. Um, right. Who has shown you things in the Senate that maybe the general public hasn't seen that you think will translate well to running for president?
1: Well, uh, Rubio has used this amendment process, I think, pretty smartly. Okay. Especially on the, on the budget. If you looked at all of Rubio's amendments, on the budget that he introduced, that's his platform for running for president. It had to do with reforms to welfare, school choice. Uh, much of his domestic platform was in uh, these Senate amendments. So then he can say, you know, look, I introduced this in the Senate and it got a vote. And those amendments, the interesting thing about those amendments on the budget was that they were non-binding. So. They didn't really mean anything. So senators could vote on them and they would pass. And, you know, he could say, I I got this to pass the Senate. But it doesn't really it didn't really matter. However, I thought it was a smart move to say, like, hey, look, I'm just going to throw my entire domestic agenda in here and, you know, have the Senate debate and vote on it. I think that was uh,
0: pretty savvy. I guess I lied when I said last question. I'm dying to know. Does Ted Cruz have a pleasant side? (laughs) He's actually
1: very pleasant He
0: is pleasant. to speak
1: to in the, uh, in the hallways. He'll stop, and he will talk to you, and he'll give you a quote. There are plenty of guys up here that don't do that.
0: So and we could some, flat out say, some, some ladies. Ted Cruz, not unpleasant. Not unpleasant to speak to in a hallway. A high-bye friend, as we said in my high school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much, Mike. Kate Sarah is the senior congressional correspondent for BuzzFeed. There are several of them. She's senior. Slate's parenting podcast is coming to North Carolina. Do you live in North Carolina? Or are you at least willing to travel for a parenting podcast? Mom and Dad are fighting is the name of the podcast. The mom is Allison Benedict. The dad is Dan Coyce. They're not married to each other, but they are married to people. They do have kids. That makes the podcast not a lie. The date of the live podcast is Sunday, June 7th at Motorco in Durham. The evening special guest will be Mac McCon of the band Super Chunk. He'll talk about parenting, about being an indie rock dad, about his new solo album, Non-Believers, and he'll play. guy from Superchunk will play for moms and dads. If you're a Slate Plus member, you get a 30% discount on your ticket purchase. Don't miss your chance to see Mom and Dad are Fighting at Motorco in Durham, North Carolina, Sunday, June 7th. For tickets, go to slate.com slash momanddadlive. And now the spiel, off-track gambling. So this is America. Look around. You live in America. Check. There's a certain class of person here in America, kind of a large class, that just will not eat a genetically modified crumb. Right, Even though something like 90% of scientists say genetically modified foods are perfectly safe. You know, more scientists say that than believe global warming has a human cause. It does. So there's this America, this country we're in, where there are plenty of people who will just freak out and spit water back at you if you tell them, oh yeah, it's from the tap, it's not purified. Our children are basically encased in Nerf. We have full body scans of old ladies to get on a plane. Our car seats have car seats. You can't install a pool without a 12 foot fence so that a 12 year old who should know better can't get over the fence and into the pool. You know I say? Good. I say good to most of these things. I say good. We're getting safer. This is improving the human condition, the human condition of Americans. And most of what I've listed, it's not the government dealing with its own backyard. It's imposing things on private citizens. The government saying, you private citizen get safer. It's in your own Good. So the seats and the purifiers and the Nerf and the puffers at the airports and the green alerts for the for the thirty-seven Americans who've been killed by a terrorist attack since 9-11? So then, with all this in mind, with this, with this environment that you know about around you, so why then? Why does a quasi-government agency, an entity, that would cease to exist tomorrow if the government didn't subsidize it? Why, then, does Amtrak not have seatbelts? Surely, risk-averse, safety-conscious Americans would want them. Even if it was only an option, perhaps those who opted for seatbelts would be some of the people who would have otherwise been killed without them, like on this Amtrak train that derailed outside of Philadelphia. Ray LaHood, former Secretary of Transportation, was on CNBC, he was asked the question do you advocate seat belts for trains well i haven't thought about it uh, enough uh, i i have used the northeast corridor
1: between washington and new york uh, many many times like most people uh, that uh, that travel to new york uh, do and i've wondered when i've boarded the trains um, about the idea of seatbelts uh... and i think it's something that uh, the department of transportation uh, the NTSB uh, should look at, it. and it may very well be that uh, the NTSB,
0: uh, during their investigation and as a part of their recommendations, could very well recommend that. Here's the disturbing, disturbing thing. It's not that his answer said, oh yeah, maybe. And it's not that his answer was less than definitive, though that's true. It's that this was the guy who was the secretary of transportation for four years. And he reacted to the question like he has never seriously considered it other than the moment when he personally sat down in a seat on a train, reached for the belt, found it wasn't there and said, huh, that's odd. And that was it. That was the extent of the follow-up. Never investigated it further. This could be a case of incuriosity leading to fatality. However, The former head of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, Deborah Hurstman said on Fox here, said she had considered seatbelts.
1: You know, this has long been a concern, and I think particularly when you look at the environment on trains, that they aren't required to restrain passengers, luggage, or even the surfaces on those trains. Sometimes in the cafe cars, you've got really hard um, areas, tray tables, um, uh, lots of surfaces for people to impact with. And... So you want to look at survivability and look at how people are able to weather not just a major derailment like this one, but also even a minor event.
0: Now, the weird thing is she was head of the NTSB for the entire time that Ray LaHood was in charge of that agency and many others. I will tell you this. There's a downside to the very simple idea of seat belts on trains, and it's not the cost. You could charge an extra two dollars for seats, and I'll get back to that. There are 12 million people who use Amtrak in the Northeast Corridor. A few million of them would pay two extra dollars for seat-belted seats, but that's not the cost. The downside is that Amtrak designs its seats, all modern trains do, design their seats to to crash well, essentially, it's called crash worthiness. And that's why this this train wreck was so bad, the one in Spite and Dival up in the Bronx, the California train that had the crash a few months ago. They're all the, the, the visuals are terrible, yet relatively few people die, especially when you compare it to, you know, a train derailment in a place like India. And the reason is the seats are designed to have almost crumple zones like they do in a car, and they're actually lighter, these seats are. And what that means is, You can't anchor a three-pointed safety harness like we have in our cars. You can't properly anchor them in one of those crash-worthy seats. Now, if you Google, why no seatbelts on trains, you'll get a Vox article that does not explain this well. The explanation I just gave is the right one. Three-pointed seatbelts would prevent ejections from train cars... But the thinking is they would come at the expense of the crash-worthy seats overall. They might not be worth it. However, where we know this and where we get this information is almost entirely from one study. Ten years ago in Britain, they did a study. There were a few train crashes. They had a column that said the number of fatalities that would have been avoided if there were seatbelts. They counted all 11 people who were ejected from the trains during these crashes. They said with a seatbelt, these 11 would live. But then they did a tally of how many people might have died were it not for the crash-worthy seats. And they said it was 88. So then they said seatbelts weren't worth it. You know what? This was a 10-year-old British study. The train crashes they're talking about took place 13 years ago. We have a former secretary of transportation who I don't know if he's ever read or is aware that those studies took place in a different country in a different decade. Are you saying we shouldn't look at that again? Remember, I brought up the idea of paying two dollars more for a seatbelt. So the idea is you can't have both Crash-worthy seats and three-pointed seatbelts. Well, a maybe you can. Maybe they can develop a crumple seat that also can anchor a three-pointed seatbelt, or maybe you can have different sections. People who pay for their their extra two dollars funding the entire program will be told you got to wear your seatbelts because these aren't the seats that will survive well in a crash. That that job is the seatbelts' job, and everyone else can sit in a seat without a seatbelt. But be told if there's a crash and you're ejected, you'll probably die. It seems more American than not actually giving people the choice. And, you know, whatever your political stripe is, let's say you're a libertarian who thinks the government should get out of the business of regulating trains or planes or just everything. Or maybe you're a great society-style Democrat. You want a lot of goods and services for your money. You know, when you step on a train in the United States, if you're an adult, you don't think, you don't magically think that everything will be perfect, of course. You don't think that accidents won't happen. But you do expect at least to be able to choose a reasonable safety measure. A safety measure that is ubiquitous in the nation's most prominent mode of transportation. You might be able to accept the reason for why there's no seatbelts, but if that reason is, yeah, we never really looked into it other than an English study that was done 10 years ago, or, yeah, well, that's the way it's always been, well, that's just not an acceptable answer. And for several grieving families today, it's worse than unacceptable. It's a sin. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, during the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2014, filled the tree with amendments as producer of The Gist. Joel Meyer, managing producer, sprang into action. He offered a poison pill. But executive producer Andy Bauer swooped in and offered the antidote. Or maybe it's just the case that he's built up an immunity to iocane powder. The Gist, you can find us on facebook.com slash slategist or follow us at Twitter. At Slate Gist, or sign up for our daily email. We'll send you the email. You can play the show right off the email. Visit slate.com slash gist email and sign up. So interesting story. The Gist was a delegate, you probably know this, a delegate at the famous convention of lunch items. And there was a proposal to allow certain types of sandwiches, cheesesteak, PB&J, and chicken parm, those are types. But the Gist served a certain constituency. The Gist knew that some of his constituency could not tolerate dairy. Others simply liked that vegan cheese, even if it was on a chicken cutlet. Who knows, the Gist doesn't judge. So the Gist worked his way into the final bill, an allowance, this was during a plenary session, an allowance for fake cheese to be allowed on the cutlet and i gotta say not only was this amendment accepted by acclamation it was treated as nothing more than a procedural formality and that my friends is the story of the pro forma faux parma amendment thanks for listening
1: Hi, I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier. And in the latest episode, we'll talk about why sometimes it's a good idea to indulge in a modest splurge and how to cope with other people's bad moods. You can subscribe to us in itunes.com slash panoply.